This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Jeff Begays. On this edition of America Change Forever from CBS News Radio, the eviction moratorium. The eviction moratorium expired, and then this week, the Biden administration issued a new one, a more limited freeze that will stay in effect through early October. The new order covers parts of the country that are experiencing what the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention calls a substantial and high spread of the coronavirus. Let's begin our conversation with CBS News Congressional Correspondent Nicole Killian. What is going on on Capitol Hill in terms of, well, let me let me ask you this way, Nicole, what what is the latest on the eviction moratorium? Well, for now, there is a temporary fix in place that was put into effect by the Biden administration uh, through an order that it did through the Centers for Disease Control. And so this is a partial moratorium or a more limited moratorium in that it really just targets areas where there is a high rate of transmission in terms of the coronavirus in light of the Delta variant. So the Biden administration has said this would cover approximately 90 percent of the population, but it is not a national moratorium, which is what was in effect before. So let's talk about the tension right now between progressive Democrats and moderate Democrats, really the, the leadership in the in the House and, and frankly, the Biden administration as well. What What is going on? Well, in terms of this moratorium and the fact that this moratorium lapsed and, and was thrown into Congress's lap at the last minute, it really did have the potential to become a flashpoint between the White House and between these progressive Democrats, uh, especially because this is an issue that they had warned about. Um, they you know, were upset with the White House that this was just uh, thrust to Congress at the last, the 11th hour, uh, right before Congress was set to recess. And it could have created some real issues between not only progressives in the White House, but also moderates in that taking the moratorium out of this, you know, you also have this massive $3.5 trillion package that is coming down the line soon uh, that the Biden administration has really been pushing Congress to uh, take up. This is a huge care infrastructure package that has a lot of progressive priorities in it in terms of addressing climate, in terms of addressing uh, child care. And so it's really critical that Democrats stay on board to pass this bill. So 
had they not resolved this issue over the moratorium, it could have created some hiccups there in terms of trying to maintain progressive support for this package, especially because many progressives believe this $3.5 trillion package should be even bigger and doesn't go far enough. Um, so at this point, the White House feels that uh, you know the coalition will hold and that they still have the support of progressives, but certainly this dust up over the moratorium could it could have created some real problems. And we're, we're seeing these dust-ups, uh, as you describe them, between moderate Democrats and progressive Democrats. We're seeing it across the country. We saw it in Ohio this week with a congressional race there. Absolutely. This was Ohio's congressional uh, 11th district uh, race between Chantel Brown and Nina Turner. Uh, Chantel Brown was the establishment candidate in that she had the backing of Hillary Clinton and the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, Jim Clyburn, uh, the House uh, Democratic whip, weighed in pretty heavily on this race. And on the other side, you had progressive Nina Turner, who was a senior advisor to Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders came out to Cleveland to campaign for her. So did Congresswoman Ocasio- Cortez. She also had the support of Cori Bush, who, of course, led uh, the protest uh, on the House steps with respect to the eviction moratorium. So uh, look, what uh, Cori Bush told uh, CBS News is that she doesn't feel that that particular race is a bellwether uh, for progressives, but it really was a reprisal of some of the really bruising primary battles we saw back in 2016 between then presidential primary candidates Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, which really came to a head uh, during that 2016 a Democratic National Convention. And, you know, equally in this race, we saw kind of that same uh, dynamic at play between the more establishment, moderate wing of the party and the progressive wing of the party. Uh, So, again, it it may not necessarily be that bellwether, but certainly was being closely watched uh, around the country, especially as we look ahead to the midterms next year. And about those midterms, there was even some discussion this week among Democrats that, hey, unless they get, you know, their their message out and really uh, uh, solidify support, galvanize their their troops, if you will, there is this concern that they could lose control of the House in the midterms. Well, I think you can see that dynamic playing out in real time almost here on Capitol Hill. Uh, Right now, you've got Speaker Pelosi and GOP leader Kevin McCarthy really at odds with each other. Um, They are just in a very... uh, intense um, war of words, if you will, on on almost everything. Uh, you know, many around here wonder if they can even get along. But, you know, what is hanging over that, of course, is the midterms in the sense that you have GOP leader Kevin McCarthy, who feels he does have a really good shot at becoming speaker in 2022, if Republicans, in fact, do take control, you also have this issue of redistricting uh, that will start to come into play later this year that could impact how some districts are drawn and uh, could, you know, threaten some uh, lawmakers and and some candidates uh, potentially in, in their respective districts. So there are a lot of dynamics at play. Uh, But certainly the midterms, uh, as you probably know, Jeff, uh, and any election for that matter, colors just about everything uh, that happens here on the Hill. And we're already seeing that. Nicole Killian, 
Thank you. You bet. There are a lot of families out there falling through the cracks. Let's listen to some of their stories. Not only am I facing the eviction for non-payment, he's also piled on what he calls violations that I have to fix, which I already have. The grass wasn't cut, but my lawnmower had broken down and I had let him know. So in order to keep on top of it, (laughs) the kids and I were taking turns with a weed whacker. I have no plan. I'm screwed. (laughs) I feel helpless. I feel like I can't do anything. I'm terrified. Job offers are coming in, but they're coming in very slowly. It's the hardest thing to see in the world when you know that you're a single mother and you have no one to turn to. You will be homeless. It was very hard. But I took the time to educate myself. And I felt like the more that I read and educated myself, the better I could protect myself. It's kind of hard to, you know, realize, okay, now I don't have a job. And I was told that there was multiple people, especially like my neighbors that got a similar letter as me, who were in the same boat and they're well aware that we are not working at the current time. Worrying about, am I going to catch COVID for one? And also waking up in the mornings and realizing that I'm not in my room and that I have to ride around all day to find places to go to shelter. And yes, I have had many sleepless nights, but I know that even with being evicted, I won't be homeless. I have family I can move in with. It, it'll just be really tight quarters, but all I care about is keeping a roof over my kids' heads. I've also worked for the past 15 years with the Homeless Activity Center family in Harrisonburg. So the thought of being homeless and being in the line with the people that I have been serving, it was overwhelming. Being someone with a underlying condition like MS, my immune system is compromised. Oh, I got the eviction letter. Yeah. So I'm paying more, way more than I was paying before. It was a pandemic. I have multiple sclerosis and you were okay with putting me out. So that tells me you don't care about my life. I think that's what's missing out of America right now is compassion for our brother. We are our brother's keeper. Let's talk now with Seamus Roller, the executive director of the National Housing Law Project. It is an advocacy organization working on housing issues and homelessness. Seamus, what are you seeing now that the Biden administration has extended this moratorium? So we're certainly happy that the Biden administration extended the moratorium. uh, But I think there's real challenges for tenants across the country. The moratorium only applies to those districts which have high level of Delta variant. And so that covers most of the country, but you've got to figure out whether you're in one of those counties that's not covered. And the CDC moratorium was always a bit of a challenge anyways for tenants because you had to issue a declaration. And so it's great to see more tenants protected, but it remains a real challenge. And it's a it's an eviction moratorium that's not going to protect everybody. So what you're saying is that there are people falling through the cracks. Yeah, there have been people falling through the cracks for the whole time that the moratorium has existed. Uh, you know, one, people just didn't know about it. Um, and then courts across the country have interpreted it in various ways. And so some courts have said, hey, if this doesn't apply if you're 
your lease has come to an end, what's called like a no-fault eviction. So the landlords can still evict you at the end of the lease term, or, you know, and many people are on month-to-month leases, so that meant that they maybe didn't get a no, you know, failure to pay rent eviction, but they got evicted at the end of their lease term. If you could speak directly to the president, what were you hoping for? What what would you want to see? You know, I think the president is trying to do the most that he can in the powers that he has. Uh, you know, what I really would have loved to have seen is Congress to have taken this up. You know, they did in CARES Act when that expired. Uh, they didn't step back up again and uh, and issue a moratorium through their powers. And I think that, you know, you have a challenge with the Supreme Court that we have, right, that they're trying as hard as they can to constrain the regulatory powers of, of the president. And so that means they're kind of ignoring, uh, you know, ignoring precedent and some of the things that they could. There are a few things that I'd really love to see the president do, though, uh, I think within his power is to stop all evictions in federally subsidized housing. So anything that's being subsidized by HUD, there's Department of Agriculture Housing, Department of Treasury. You know, I really don't think we should be evicting the people who are in subsidized housing because those folks are in many ways the lowest income, the most vulnerable. If those people get evicted, there's a high likelihood that they're going to become homeless. And that has huge ramifications for all of us. There are landlords who are speaking out now saying that there are tenants who are trying to take advantage of the situation. How do you respond to, to them? I mean, these landlords, they're, they're trying to run a business. Well, I think there, you know, there are a number of programs that are out there. There's mortgage forbearance programs. In the end, what rental assistance is, is primarily payments to renters. They were trying to keep renters housed long enough for their rental assistance payments to arrive to them um, and to make sure that they're whole and the tenants remain housed. And so this is a you know, $46 billion program. There's enough money out there to pay the back rent of all of the eligible tenants. And, I, you know, I don't think that tenants are like a perfect group of people, right? We're talking about 40% of the country. There's some good people. There's some, there's lots and lots of good people. There's a few bad people, but I think, you know, no public policy is perfect in any ways. There's going to be some challenges for everybody. And I don't want to downplay the challenges for landlords. I just think that this is crucial for the long-term stability of the country, that we keep renters in their homes, that we keep them safe, that we manage to let this huge rental assistance program that we've created work. And I think that that's what's in all of our best interests. You are an advocate for the homeless. What have you seen over the last 18 months or so with the, the pandemic? Has it increased uh, the homeless population across this country? The data isn't really caught up, I think, to the point that we're at right now. Um, but I think there are a few things going on, which is that the pandemic has, in a number of different ways, hit the most vulnerable part of our population. We're talking about you know, young families of color in particular who are working in the service sector, right, who are much more likely to have uh, lost jobs, you know, had a difficulty getting unemployment insurance, uh, who have much more likely to have had a family member who got COVID, you know, likely to get evicted. This sort of combination of factors that has affected, you know, maybe like 10 or 15 percent of the population in just a really disproportionate way during the pandemic. And I really worry about how those families rebound, how they don't end up being homeless. And the long-term impacts on homelessness, I think, are yet to be seen and are cumulative over time. But I think we're going to be struggling with the folks who end up homeless during the pandemic for 
for years to come and hopefully not for decades. Well, what someone pointed this out to me here in D.C., they they wondered if there has been an increase in in people living on the streets, because frankly, what you see in spots around the city, parks around the city, just really yards away from the White House are people living in tents. Uh, they're living in tents. And so, you know, is, is this, is this normal or is this something that we're seeing more in cities across the country that are having a hard time finding housing for people or, you know, the homeless population just trying to survive on the streets? Uh, One of the other things that's happening right now is that the housing market is, you know, very, uh, is on fire, right? I mean, housing costs are going up in many places across the country. And so, you know, if you look at the numbers overall, you know, the higher housing costs go, the greater your homeless population is. I mean, housing costs is the biggest driver overall. Uh, and so we're seeing, I think, what is more homeless people. I think there's another dynamic as well is that a lot of local governments have, you know, limited the sweeps of encampments during the pandemic that they felt like disrupting the lives of homeless people in that way was problematic for the pandemic. And so a lot of the people that were homeless are also more visible to, you know, to everyday people. And you, so you see that, and I think you have those two dynamics playing out in which, you know, a growing homeless population, greater visibility. And so if you're just a person who wouldn't normally encounter homeless folks, you're seeing it much more, uh, much more in your face than you were before. At some point here, this moratorium, even though you're you're not completely satisfied with it, um, and there are a lot of people who have problems with it because there are folks falling through the cracks here. But at some point, this moratorium is going to go away. What do you foresee when that happens? I, you know, I've been worried about that for the last 15 months or so. Uh, that's been my entire life, basically. Uh, yeah, I really... You know, I think one of the things is that the reason that we don't have more evictions is that there are a lot of great landlords out there, right, who are trying to work with their tenants and keep them housed and want to apply for the rental assistance programs. And so I think it's really, uh, you know, that, that the reason we don't have a bigger problem is because there are many good landlords out there. The other thing is, is that there are a whole host of other programs and efforts. You know, there are court systems that are trying to implement diversion programs, keep people from getting evicted while they're applying for rental assistance. There are a handful of uh, state moratoriums on evictions that will continue no matter what. But I think we're going to face, uh, you know, a significant uptick in evictions when the moratorium lapses, whether that's because the court system steps in or because it runs out in October. And so I think that that time, what I think about is how quickly can we get rental assistance out to families before that moment hits. And so our advocacy as an organization is one, keep the moratoriums afloat, two, put as much pressure as we can on the state and city rental assistance programs to start functioning better because some are doing very well uh, and others are doing very poorly. Seamus, thank you. Thanks for having me. Turning now to homeowners. There are potential storm clouds over the housing market as well. This week, the Washington Post reported that over 2 million homeowners are delinquent on their mortgage. Logan Matashmi is the lead analyst at Housing Wire. 
All right, Logan, thanks for coming on the program. The Washington Post reporting this week that deferred debt is about to hit homeowners, that over 2 million homeowners are delinquent on their mortgages. So what does that mean for the housing market as a whole? Well, generally, forbearance was never going to be the huge problem that a lot of people thought last year. Uh, Forbearance itself, the numbers were near 5 million uh, a little bit roughly after the crisis started, and I, I, uh, my work was basically trying to explain to people that the numbers of this data line will come come down on itself. So we've gone from near five million in forbearance to about 1.9 million currently, and a lot of this has to do with that the people that got got home loans post 2010 financials were fine; they all could qualify for the debt payment. And naturally, when COVID started, some people took forbearance that didn't need it. They got off it. When the jobs came back, uh, they uh, they were able to get themselves off of forbearance. And we still have millions of jobs left that need to be created. But homeowners typically, on average, make about $100,000 nationally. So the people that made their incomes that were over 60000 most of them have gotten their jobs back. So there's still a lot of uh, uh, room to go to the downside on forbearance. Uh, there's always going to be people that uh, will not be able to keep their homes, but the numbers will be nothing like what we saw uh, due to the credit bubble that we had from 2002 to 2005. And then in 2008, we had the job loss recession. So uh, forbearance can pr- provide some inventory uh, once it expires, but it was never going to be the the big negative event that a lot of people had thought last year. Well, let's backtrack because you can obviously do a better job explaining what exactly uh, forbearance is than I can do. So so tell us again, remind us, if you will, what what is forbearance? Basically, when the crisis started, uh, there was an effort to keep people in their homes. So forbearance was a deferred payment system uh, that you know started out at 12 months, and, and for some people it could go to 18 months. And at the end of forbearance, there's going to be options given to the uh, homeowner. Most likely, uh, they will tag the you know loan balance maybe to the end of the loan, amortize it out, so people's payments will be roughly similar to what they had before. Uh, due to the crisis, you know, uh, early on, a lot of people just weren't sure how the economy was going to react because COVID was not an economic event. It was a health crisis. So the numbers initially were were very big because delinquency ratios were very low right before COVID started. But what happened was instead of forbearance going to 10, 15, some people talked about even 20 million, forbearance data started to go lower because initially there were some people that just took it that really didn't need it. Their jobs weren't lost. And then the job market started to come back. Millions and millions of jobs returned. So that process takes time to get off of forbearance because you have to do the legal paperwork. But we have seen just a collapse in the data within the first 15 months. And there's still a lot of uh, uh, room to go to the downside because people were not sure what was going to happen with the economy at first. And when jobs started coming back, all of them can qualify for that payment that they, whenever they bought their house in 2012, 15, 17, it didn't matter. Uh, As long as they have an income, that debt payment for that cost of shelter was very acceptable. And now, you know, they're going to try to do some 
uh, programs and in terms of maybe making a 30-year loans to a 40-year loan amortization to keep the payments uh, based on their, their income profile. So it was a very, very successful uh, program that the government initiated because majority of the people have already been, have been taken off of forbearance. And again, there's a lot of room for the numbers to go even lower. I, I'm expecting forbearance to be under a million uh, next year and the Freddie and Fannie, their forbearance delinquency ratios to be under 1%. Well, that's uh, that's that's good news, Logan. I mean, it, it sounds like the, the way you outline this, it sounds like uh, American homeowners are paying their debts, which is that sounds like good news to me. Yes, I mean, it was it was always the case. One of the things that I've talked about over the the previous decade is that the loan profiles of of American homeowners is the best on record ever. And what I mean is that, you know, the FICO scores are extremely high, much higher than they were uh, in, in, in the previous decade. But the debt structure of loans, and, and I, I always uh, talk about it in this way, American homeowners have this benefit. They have fixed low debt costs versus rising wages. So currently today, uh, your mortgage payment as a percentage of your disposable income are at all time lows because mortgage rates went lower again, and majority of the people that uh, wanted to refinance did refinance. So uh, that's the benefit of being a homeowner in, in that regard. And these loans are very vanilla. They're very boring. They're just fixed long-term products. And keeping lending standards the way we did post-2010 really benefited us during this crisis. And we can see this through the forbearance data as forbearance data did not increase like a lot of people had thought, it uh, decreased on its own. And we still have 7.65 million jobs left. Uh, we should be able to get all the jobs that we lost to COVID-19 by September of 2022. But a lot of homeowners got their jobs back and they're getting off of forbearance. It's one of the more successful programs in U.S. economic history. All right. So you talk about some of these uh, mortgages being boring. I guess in this case, boring is good. Yes. Boring is exceptionally good. That's how uh, a credit should be. If, uh, credit gets in trouble when you try to get creative or create some kind of exotic loan debt structure wasn't the case. Um, uh, the data had continuously showed us this, that uh, that American homeowners had this benefit of having positive cash flow. And every time rates went lower, they refinanced. And we're at historical lows in terms of uh, your mortgage payment as a percentage of disposable income. So the American homeowners are, are in much better shape compared to what we saw from 2002 to 2005, where you had speculation, exotic loan debt structures, things that recast it to a very high level. It is as boring as you can get, you know, past 2010. And it is such a benefit to the United States of America to have very boring home loans, you know, and we should never try to change that. That's one of the benefits we have in the previous expansion. And hopefully, we keep that going for many decades to come. You are bullish right now. At least it sounds to me like you're bullish on the housing market right now. But there's got to be a downside. There's got to be some sort of thing that people can watch out for that perhaps they didn't anticipate. What do you think that is? Well, in re regards to the economy, we're in year one of the economic expansion. Um, uh, savings rates are still good. Uh, disposable incomes per capita are still good. But in regards to housing, the the one thing that I was actually uh, always concerned about is 
home prices have the ability to accelerate beyond what we saw in the previous decade. And this is primarily a function of demographics, right? A lot of my work is based on the previous cycle not being very strong in, in terms of recovery. Mortgage debt actually uh, adjusting to inflation was has never even uh, passed the peak of the housing bubble. But years 2020 to 2024 has the best housing demographics ever recorded in U.S. history. It also has the lowest mortgage rates ever recorded in history. And what has happened since 2014, total inventory and housing has been slowly falling. Uh, the only the other data line that correlates with this is that purchase applications uh, uh, for homes have also been increasing since 2014. Housing is very demographically driven, and years 2020 to 24 has the biggest youngest demographic patch in history. So as inventory falls, if demand picks up a little bit, which it has. You can see what's going on is that you have, in my in my view, the most unhealthiest housing market post 2010, not because it's a housing bubble or credit is bad. It's this we have the raw shortage of homes that's forcing Americans to bid against each other. And that has created uh, uh, an acceleration of uh, home price growth for me, well beyond the range that I am comfortable for. for so it, what it does is that it eats away through affordability. Uh, because these kind of prices are sticky. There's no 50 or 60% home price crash coming because homeowners now, uh, you know, from 1985 to 2007, the average housing tenure was about five years. Post 2008, we're above 10 years now in certain states like in California, it's 13, 14, 15 years. People are just staying in their homes longer. So that in a, self, in a sense can create and facilitate higher uh, national home price growth uh, and that's what we've seen in, in 2020. I think a lot of people were thinking, well, COVID crisis, it's 2008 again, home prices are going to crash. I was very adamant that not only were we going to recover last year in 2020, but you have to be careful of home prices taking off. And that's the unhealthy aspect of the U.S. housing market is that there's just not enough homes out there to prevent this home uh, price acceleration from cooling down, but it should over time because we don't have a credit boom. I always talk about, you know, if you look at housing data, it's not like mortgage demand is booming higher, uh, like we saw from 2002 to 2005. We have very stable demographic replacement buyer demand. That's the term I like to use instead of housing boom. Replacement buyer demand just basically means every year we're going to have a certain group of people ages 20, uh, 27 to 33 are the biggest in US history. So that they need shelter. Right. So you think of them, then move up buyers, move down buyers, cash buyers, investors. You put them all together, you have stable demand. But stable demand can create unhealthy home price growth in years 2020 to 2024. And we've seen that. So hopefully inventory picks up total inventory levels and then the bidding wars uh, go down. That's the unhealthy aspect. People need to have choices because it's sheltered. This is not like a stock. People need to have somewhere to live. And when we have the biggest housing demographic patch ever and the lowest mortgage rates, unfortunately, you could get uh, unhealthy year-over-year price growth. All right. So if you're a homeowner, sounds like the market, you know, if you decide to sell is in your favor right now. So should you sell? Well, this is this is a question that I get uh, a lot. Should I buy or should you should I sell? Honestly, if you have to ask somebody if you should buy a home or sell a home, something's wrong. You, every individual household has their own uh, financials and they have their own story. Like a lot of people, people have been waiting for people to sell for a very long time. 
and for personal reasons, they don't because they like where they live. Um, uh, and one of the one of the problems sellers have right now, uh, it's not that demand is bad. It's just that when you sell your home, where are you going to go? And that's the thing. It's just that there are some people that, you know, uh, uh, they have a reason to move up or move down. But when you sell that property, you have to go live somewhere. And it's different with housing than, let's say, a stock. You can sell your stock. It does nothing for your day-to-day life. So sellers uh, that might be looking to maybe move up or move down are also in kind of a strain because the inventory levels are not there. And then you also have to bid against people. I think a lot of, we, we always think of sellers having this advantage. Well, yeah, you can sell your home, but you have to have somewhere to live. And if there's not that many homes out there, uh, you're not guaranteed to purchase the house that you want. Uh, so there is some seller stress out there with buyer stress, of course. Uh, uh, you can imagine, you know, if you lose your bid to one or two home buyers, it's one thing in a housing market. When you're losing your bid to 11 to 15 to 17 home buyers, it becomes daunting. And it's not, you know, it's in you're qualified, you're good to go. And I think that's the unhealthy, stressful aspect of housing currently. It's that buyers are stressed and even sellers to a degree because they need to live somewhere. Obviously, if you're an investor, it doesn't really matter because you're not living in that house. But as a homeowner, you have to find another shelter place to live in. And I think that is somewhat problematic for some sellers because they're they're not guaranteed to get the home they want. Now, total inventory has been rising since February. That's more of the seasonal push we get in housing data each year. What we'd want as a country is for these levels to stick and go a little bit higher. And once total inventory goes a little bit higher, choices, right? Americans want to have choices. They don't want to bid against uh, 20 or 30 people. And once you get choices back, the market should stabilize, the rate of growth of pricing should fall, and it becomes a more healthier market than what we have currently uh, uh, this year and, and toward the end of last year. Here's another question that I think you probably get all the time. Should I refinance if, say, I have a 3.5% uh, interest rate on a 30-year fixed? Uh, I'm 10 years into that uh, mortgage. Uh, you know, I'm looking online right now. I, I see these 30-year uh, fixed uh, at, what is it, 2.8%. So the numbers, it, it, based on the numbers, it seems like you should refinance, right? Yes. And, and for people refinancing, they basically have to uh, either go to their bank or loan officer and just have them run the numbers. I think that the answer to the question actually comes from the numbers itself. Once you realize uh, where your interest rate is, how much money you want to save, and then you have to uh, uh, kind of recalibrate that the loan starts over again. And maybe you don't even need a 30-year loan. You could get a 25-year loan. You could get a 15-year loan, a 20-year loan. Uh, run the numbers, right? And again, everyone has a different financial story. Uh, uh, so uh, once you have the numbers in hand, the decision a lot of times is easy for you. I mean, millions and millions of Americans refinanced during this uh, uh, crisis event. Their cash flow is better. Uh, uh, so uh, once I, I think it's it's important for everybody just to kind of look at their own financials and make the decision on your own. If it, it, and if once you get the numbers in front of you, it, it, your choice, your decision will be very quick, right? Because some people like the uh, extra cash flow. Some people like to, you know, uh, lower their amortization. Maybe they want to pay their house off in twenty years. Whatever it is, 
the option is yours, but you you have to run the numbers. I think that makes the choice for each individual in America today. And typically, let's say you choose to refinance, are you going to have to come out of pocket with closing costs, or is that worked into the loan typically? There are there are a lot of options uh, uh, re- regarding that. You know, again, you'd have to talk to your bank or your loan officer. But uh, generally speaking, you know. Uh, once, once you have all the variables in front of you, it really, the decision is really quick. In, in my experience, once people see the numbers or how much it costs, you know, uh, I mean, mortgage rates have been falling since 1981. Uh, so the notion that mortgage rates are going to go higher for four decades has been wrong. Uh, and, and rates can still go lower uh, even this year or next year. But uh, again, each and every individual has their own story. Uh, the the one constant is that you have to have the numbers in front of you to make that decision, and I think that is something everybody should. And 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 to be honest, majority of the people have already refinanced. The origination numbers from last year and this year, if you look at on a historical basis, are very high. Uh, so I think a lot of people took advantage of that. And again, it's always your own personal choice. Do you want better cash flow? Do you want to shorten the loan? Each each individual has to have their own story. But once you get the numbers in front of you, you're good to go. I remember in the mid-90s buying my first home, and the interest rate at that time was 8%. <laughs> and we were thinking, oh, that's a pretty good interest rate. I mean, it's amazing. It is just amazing how the rates have continued to drop. Yeah, and, and, and what I've done, you know, a lot of conferences I speak at, I always talk about the downtrend in the bond market and in mortgage rates, you know, from 1981, if you look at that chart, that has been consistently going lower. And these forecasts of higher rates, you know, for three or four decades have all been wrong. You kind of have to keep it simple and just think about it that this magnificent, humongous bond market that's leading mortgage rates have been falling for decades. If you really want to go back to the 1300s, even bond yields and uh, uh, have been heading lower that typically does not reverse historically unless there's some type of really big magnanimous economic event. So rates can stay low for a very long time. Um, I, I've always t- I, I try to convince people for many years that mortgage rates are going to go sub 3%. And uh, it, was, it was very hard to convince people, but now we're here and rates can still go lower uh, uh, um, even this year. So it's something that's, uh, you know, for myself personally, as a, as a chartist, you can see this downtrend happening for a very long time. And, uh, there's nothing that changes the big major move in that regards. Rates of, of course, in a year can go up and down, but that downtrend has been very, uh, uh prominent and it's still intact. Logan Matashme, lead analyst at Housing Wire. Very helpful. Thank you for your time. My pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Next week on the America Change Forever podcast, we're going to take a look at the challenges that school districts are facing as they prepare for the start of the school year amid this ongoing pandemic. I'm expecting it. It's going to be safe for the kids. And we have a seven-year-old and a 13. He's vaccinated. She's not. So... 
you know, completely understand health comes first? I think that uh, right now we don't know what we don't know about the Delta variant. And I think that even if you're vaccinated, it may make sense to be masked up in public places. No, total waste of time. The kids don't, uh, they're, they're just not going to wear masks, right? It's like, oh, they'll wear them, but they're like half down or cockeyed or whatever, right? So I don't, I don't know what the purpose is personally. A lot of people have a lot of opportunities to take their vac vaccination. I think it's very unfortunate that they haven't followed through and we really need to get everybody to vaccinate. He's anxious. <laughs> yeah, I just want to get back to school. How long has it been? It's been such a long time. It's been a long time. It was, I think, over a year and a half ago that they shut us down. My six-year-old, he does have certain bronchitis and, and lung conditions, so I think about that and I say, no, I don't want to do that. And so it's, it's tough. Yeah, it does worry me a lot. And I think with this new information now, it's sort of time to sit down with my wife and reassess. Although online learning, like, it's good, it's not the same as the real thing. Because I'm wearing a mask, it helps me know that, that I'm safe. Moderately comfortable, but, but nervous. We definitely are eager for the kids to get back to school. He misses his friends like crazy, and we're all looking forward to more normalcy. The school environment, as we know it right now, is still going to be safe. You should get vaccinated if you really want to protect your kids and build a wall of vaccinated people around your kids. You know, I, I really don't expect it to be a challenge to work with our teachers to get our schools reopened. In fact, I think they've shown a lot of uh, proactive uh, communication about wanting to reopen schools. All teachers want schools reopened. We just want to make sure that they're safe for students and for staff. So I look at it as uh, another partner in the process of making sure that we're doing what's right to reopen our schools. And while the Delta variant is providing uh, new challenges, we have the tools, we have the resources, and we have the experience of what worked last year to get it done safely. I'm worried that decisions that are being made that are not putting students at the center and student health and safety at the center is going to be why schools may be disrupted. So we know what to do. You know, don't be the reason why schools are disrupted because of uh, the politicization of, of this uh, effort to reopen schools. We know what works. We have to keep our students safe. We have to keep our educators safe. That is it for this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcast. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Begay's CBS, where you can also send your program ideas. What do you want us to look into? And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhall and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America changed forever. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings.
Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.